Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the seat in front of you, and you can turn to page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Happy Father's Day, everybody. And um, yeah, as we begin today's message, let's start with a prayer. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So last week, we went over what love is. And so what is love? Love never ends. Love is eternal. Love is the foundational reality by which we are to live and exercise our gifts. Gifts are temporal. Love is eternal. I heard an example of two weddings. One wedding was a destination wedding. Its setting was on the shore of a lake beach in the mountains. The couple was nervously smiling, and it was... As, everyone, as far as everyone there was concerned, a breathtaking and beautiful backdrop. They had brought in a classical guitarist who played music while the people gathered for the ceremony. And as the ceremony began, it began with the select readings from 1 Corinthians 13. The couple had written their own vows and it ended with a promise. I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall love. The second example of a wedding was High Church. They had an organist play Bach from these mammoth organ pipes. The dress was formal. The floral arrangements extravagant. They had vows read from the common book of prayer. And the homily was from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 in which the person giving the homily said, and assured that love never ends. While hearing this, an old man in the front would mutter, but mutter loud enough for people to hear, he would mutter nonsense. How naive. And people were really upset with him Obviously, but he was right. That couple divorced in two years. 
Most people hear 1 Corinthians 13 in one fashion or form or the other. It's either background noise when described uh, in a wedding or something like that, but when it's presented in a homily a little more thoroughly, it's a little bit unreal. It's a little bit naive because it's too good to be true. Love never ends because everything ends, right? Everything ends, right? How can anyone love with a love that never ends? But I would say, if you don't know this, then I will go as far as to say you don't know Jesus. I'm like, whoa. It's that serious. Because Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. How? As he has loved you. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God. So the immutable God has given his immutable love to you, and now you are to love one another. How? As Jesus loved you. This is a high call for a disciple. And so in Paul, so Paul in chapter 13 goes into the details about love. We looked at the preeminence of love from verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That love is the highest thing. The Corinthians thought gifts were the highest thing, and they were ranking them in order of which one was from high to low. But no, love is the highest thing. And if you missed that point, you missed everything. And then from verses 4 to 7, we saw the characteristics of love, how love is a certain action. Love is patient and kind. And love is also not a certain action. Love does not envy or, or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And last week, we started on verses 8 to 13, about the immutability of love, how, love, how it never ends, and how it is by this ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of love that we ought to live. So chapter 13 has the preeminence of love, and the characteristics of love, and now the immutability of love. Pakai if you put the first letters together. It's easy to remember that way. But Paul is showing us that it is this love, so this love that is being described here, that is the distinguishing mark for Christians. It is when we have this love for one another that people know that we are Christ's disciples. This is to be the mark of the church. But the Corinthians were not enamored by love, but they were enamored by the gifts. The gifts. 
And so you would hear things. Oh, I know this person was a Christian because when they were six, they had this gift. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, I know this person growing up was a Christian because I saw this gift displayed. And the Corinthians were enamored, so they pursued the fantastical, the esoteric. But what was really what they were pursuing, what it really was, was temporal. And Paul is saying you should have pursued the immutable. They were giving up the eternal for the things that were passing away and ceasing. You see, Christians and subsequently the church is not to be known by the temporal gifts, the things that pass away. The church and the people of God should be known for our love. And that being said, I think people confuse that now too. Some people think that love is simply camaraderie or emotion or sentiment. And while you can have that to certain degrees, it is not what defines love. Reread verses 4 to 7. Simple camaraderie falls short of those standards. This is why the church understands this, that if you, if you have love, behind that love, you need sound doctrine. It's this doctrine or theology that teaches us what love is. It's the doctrine and theology that will show us that we ought to love each other so much that we would chase the other person down when they're about to sin and help them walk back. It's the doctrine and theology that helps us love rightly. Doctrine and theology, just for knowledge's sake, would puff up. And so that is not love. But if you don't have the right doctrine or theology, you don't know love. And so that's why Paul is going through every single detail. In verse 8 of this chapter, we are taught that love never ends. Love is the eternal thing. And it's closed off, this passage is closed off by Verse 13, love is the greatest thing. Prophecy, tongue, knowledge, these gifts are temporal. The eternal thing is love. This is what will be dominating heaven. It's love. And I've heard it beautifully put this way. The dominating thing in heaven is love, and running alongside it is joy. Why? Because, because Jesus the answer here is Jesus, and we'll get to that. The answer here is Jesus. There are lots of great things here, here right now, in the temporal world, but it won't be in heaven. This includes the revelatory and sign gifts, because the one thing that does not pass away or cease is love. The word for end has been translated elsewhere and pretty much everywhere, in the Bible, you'll see, if you translate this word, it'll translate it as fall, fall. It's only in this verse it's translated end, which is still right. But 
To fall is to fall and die. Paul is saying love will never fall and die. And the imagery of that Greek word is you could imagine petals falling off of a rose as it dies. I remember watching a movie many times when I was growing up where it was a rose with the petals falling down and he had to find love or he would stay a beast forever, right? I watched that many times, right? Uh, but it was romantical. But, but love isn't like that. That's the point. As good as that movie was, it's still pointing to the temporal. Paul is not pointing to this temporal kind of understanding. He's saying love never dies. Love is eternal. Gifts are temporal. But that doesn't mean that gifts aren't important. There had to be prophecy, there had to be tongues, and there had to be a revelation of divine knowledge. It was essential in establishing the church. But it will not be there forever. Prophecy and knowledge will pass away, tongues will cease, and we see this play out in the scriptures. The gift of tongues is only mentioned in two books. Three, if you count the one thing, one time Jesus said that about new languages in Mark. But it's only mentioned in the early writings of the New Testament. Not, mind you, not in all the early writings. But in only two of the early writings is the gift of tongues mentioned, and that's Acts and 1 Corinthians. By the time the later writings were given, there is no mention of tongues whatsoever, not even in 2 Corinthians. As much as tongues was a problem in the Corinthian church when he wrote 1 Corinthians, there's no mention of that in 2 Corinthians. You have to wonder how come if tongues was such a problem in 1 Corinthians, not even a peep about it by the time we get to Paul's second letter. And scholars would imagine perhaps because it has ceased by then already. And we see this also in our church history. There is no mention of tongues from the early church fathers except in the case of Montanus. Montanus was someone who claimed to be a prophet around 160 AD. He was from Frisia, and this is why Montanism is also called the Cataphrisian heresy. Montanus would go around with some women, and they would prophesy under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what they would say they, were, they would be doing. And he was successful in converting many towns into Montanism. And to prophesy, what would happen is you would fall into this trance and then speak this ecstatic speech, tongues, as he would say. And Montanus himself would claim that he was the paraclete, the spirit of truth that Jesus promised in John 17. And because he was claiming this, he would say, it's because I am the paraclete, I can now induce my followers to follow and do the same ecstatic things, say that same ecstatic speech, and it would flow from him. It became clear that Montanus did not speak with the voice of the Spirit and was rather a heretic. This ecstatic speech and excessive swaying, these things were rejected by the early church because that was not what Christ taught. 
But this ecstatic speech and excessive swaying is also found in a religion called Kundalini. Kundalini is a form of Hinduism today. You can even find YouTube videos online of practitioners and teachers of Kundalini that will speak in this form of ecstatic speech or what they would say is tongues. And I want to warn you, if you do look that up, it sounds just like what you might hear in some churches. Augustine writes about tongues too. And Augustine was a church father in the 300s, the 4th century. And so he wrote this. In regard to Acts 2.4, he said this. In the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spake with tongues, which they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues, to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a betokening, and it passed away. That thing was done for a betokening, and it passed away. You know, why, why, are you keep, why do you keep on saying this stuff? Why do you keep on saying stuff like this? It's, I share what I share because I want you to be informed. Because each gift has a purpose. And it's shown to us in the Bible. Because the temporal things point to something. Even if it's temporal, I'm, I'm not saying it is not necessary or important. I'm saying it points to something. And that's what we ought to know. In verse 9 it says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Even the gifts of knowledge and prophecy, they are showing us in part. What does that mean? Well, we know that the prophecy and knowledge gifts were there because at the time, the scriptures that we know didn't all exist. So God used people to prophesy. And I'll take a side note here, in part, this is why we hold in high esteem the preaching of God's word. The preacher is now an intermediary between the scriptures and the listeners, but it comes from this gift of prophecy. That's what it pointed to. There's no denying this. But what does in part mean? It means even though we have the scriptures, it is completely in part. I know, that, that sounds kind of confusing. It's wholly partial. Eh, that doesn't make sense either, right? But this is something, no matter how wise you are, that you will have to concede to. As much as we know, we know so little because we know in part, because we are limited. If I attempt to understand the infinite, my mind will eventually either shut down or come to a conclusion that is illogical. And we see many philosophers struggle with this because we have limitations. We can only know in part. And this doesn't mean that we are wrong or the partial is wrong. Only it's not whole or completed. Just like elementary school will teach you math, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if you go, do you know math? 
You're like, yeah, I know math. I know 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it doesn't mean you can solve quadratic equations yet. And even if you are up to that point, yeah, it doesn't mean you know how to solve Goldbach's conjecture, where every even number is the sum of two primes. You guys know about this one? It's pretty cool, right? Every even number is the sum of two primes, and you have to figure out a formula. No one has figured it out yet. Okay, anyway. All right, forget that one. Um, so this is what we do when we contemplate. We know that we are limited is my point. Did I blow some of people? Like, if you've never heard of it, it's, it's blowing you away, right? Every even number is the sum of two primes. Oh, anyway, but this is something even greater than Goldbach's conjecture is my point. When contemplating God's mercy, when we think about God's mercy, Paul writes this in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's what we mean by partial. We get some basics. It's incredibly important. You need the formal basics to get to the intermediary and then so on. But in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. But we do know, is the point, we do know this. We do know 2 plus 2 equals 4. We have been given the knowledge of salvation. It's written in this book. But we are limited. In our revelation and in our capacity, we are limited. Why? Because we are finite? Yes. Because of the fall? Yes, that too. But one day, this is what it's saying, one day, and this is the crazy part. Goldbach's conjecture is nothing. It's the point. One day you will come to full knowledge. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. How does God know me? In part? Progressively? No. He knows us fully. And Paul is writing that one day we will also know fully. Fully know what? It says in verse 12, I will see face to face. If you've done Exodus with us, if you've done Matthew with us, this is crazy. I will know face to face. It's whoa. Right now we see in a mirror dimly the city of Corinth was known for their variety and the sheer amount of mirrors they had. Mirrors are something that we love. We love our little black mirror. We love the mirrors that we have in our homes. We love mirrors on our cars and our dashboards, whatever. Every, every, mirrors are everywhere. But Corinth was something similar. But those mirrors in Corinth weren't like our mirrors today. And they were just made out of metal or metal sheets. So it was kind of, you know, obscured. So we see a reflection like we would see in the mirrors is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. It's dimly. It's not that clear. 
But one day we will see face to face. One day we will be face to face. One day the revelation of God will be in full. That's a crazy statement. So when will all of this happen? When is this going to happen? And it says in the Bible, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So what is the perfect? Some could say that the perfect is the completion of the writing of the canon or scriptures, but I don't think so. The perfect would not have been assumed by the Corinthians as the completion of the scriptures because they would have no idea what that even meant. So you got to put it in context. And while the completion of the scriptures was a part of the journey to the perfect, and this is what's absolutely necessary. We see this in the revelatory and sign gifts that we talked about last week, which I won't get into again. But the Corinthians were prophesying, and they had been given the divine knowledge in part. And this also doesn't mean that, you know, they, were, they, they couldn't like, live otherwise. I mean, it does in a sense, but it just simply doesn't mean the finishing and putting down a scripture is my point. It meant that we won't know fully until the perfect comes. So even now, we won't know fully until the perfect comes. And the qualifying verse explaining this, the perfect, is verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So then you might think, does this have to do with maturation? Yes, but not simply your own maturation, but the maturation or completion of God's plan. Paul gives the example of becoming a man. As a child, it was time for him to behave like a child, but a time is coming when you become a man. In many cultures, there's still a rite of passage for adult men and adult women. It's when you become a man, you start to reason like a man. You put away those childlike things because now you have to act not like a child, but like a man. A man acting like a child is absurd and would not be able to function in society. In the same way, the word for katargeo, which I mentioned last week, the word pass away, the fourth time it's used, comes into its fullest force here. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. It will be stopped, just like when a child becoming a man stops acting like a child so that he can act like a man. So the perfect here is talking about the consummation of all things. It's not simply talking only about the second coming of Christ. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth that will be ushered in with the parousia. It's talking about the final stage when the believer, when they go from justified, sanctified, to finally glorified. This is the perfect. That's when all things that are temporal will pass away because the perfect will come. And when the perfect comes, what remains? So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. These three graces, faith, hope, and love, are mentioned together throughout the New Testament. In Romans 5, 2-5, Galatians 5, 5, Ephesians 1, 15 to 18, 
even chapter 4, 2 to 5, Colossians 1 to 4, 1 Thessalonians 1 to 3. And it just, there's all these mentions, Hebrews 6, 10 to 12, that put these three things together. These three graces will remain. But faith is hoping for things not yet seen. Once you see God, that faith will change. You'll still have faith in God. You'll still have faith in God, but not in the same manner as you do now. You know, you hope for something that you don't have yet. But when the perfect comes, you will have it. The hope will still remain, but it will be changed because your hope will still be in God, just not in the same manner as you do now. But love, love remains and it remains in the supreme place. God cannot be said to have faith or hope, but God has love because God is love. Paul isn't doing an an exhaustive explanation of the three things, and neither will I. But the last he is comparing with what is temporal like the gifts with faith, hope, and love. And there is nothing greater than love. So how can we love this kind of love? Well, first, we have to understand that we can love this kind of love because God first loved us. First John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. That's why we ought to and have to and we can love. We can love because he loved us. Secondly, we love through God's love. In Romans chapter 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because we have this love now, it's been poured into our hearts, we can now give to others this love because it's been given to us. And finally, Paul shows the Corinthians how they can love. He, can, he shows them the how by the very next words after saying the greatest of these is love. In chapter 14, verse 1, he goes, pursue love. Pursue love. And that's what we ought to do in the church. We ought to pursue love. These three things are why love is different in the church. This is why you don't have people loving each other in the same manner in any other institution because the love that we ought to display simply isn't sentiment. The love that we have been given is eternal. It's unchanging. It's the same love. It's the same love that was there when God created the foundations of the universe. It's the same love that sustained his people through the desert. It's the same love that Christ had for us when he prayed the high priestly prayer, that we would be united in love. And it's the same love he had for us when he paid for our sins by dying on the cross, that we, believing in him, might go from death to life. You see, we are the mutable ones. We change. When we are tempted, our devotion fades. Challenged, our faith stumbles. Disappointed, our hope goes away. 
But you see, we have been given something that is unchanging. We have been given the love of our God. Love links you to eternity. I started off with the example of the weddings. But the real wedding where chapter 13 alludes to is the consummation of all things. It's the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. That's the real wedding that love is linking you to. This is the grace that we have been given. It's been communicated to us. And so by loving one another then, we are communicating this grace to one another, identifying us then as children of God and disciples of Christ. And this is why we ought to love one another as he loved us, thereby showing the world that we are disciples of Christ. Can we do this? Yes, he first loved us. And do we have what it takes to love? Yes, because he has poured out our hearts, poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit, his love. And finally, we pursue love, meaning this is what we ought to fight for, we chase, we strive for, and we put our sweat, we put our energy into pursuing love. This is what we ought to do for one another. It doesn't mean it's going to come easy. Loving isn't easy. But what we see is that when we follow what Christ is teaching us, when we pursue love, we'll see that this excellent, this most glorious, this eternal thing we have been given so that we can give to each other, then it is worth. It is worth it. And this is why we can do this together. We ought to do this together and we are given the assurance that it will be completed in us as Christ completes his promise to us as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even though we are immutable, your love is unchanging, and it is this unchanging love that has been given to us. And Lord God, help us not only to understand, but to now live in the manner that you teach us to to love one another as you have loved us, to love one another as you have loved us, showing the world that we are your disciples. Oh God, teach us your ways and help us to humbly walk in repentance and in joy. Let's take this time to pray and let's lift up our concerns, our hearts to the Lord where we are lacking, but let's lift it up in the assurance that this is something that God has promised and that he says he will complete, he will give us the perfect, he will complete it in us, for he is the author and perfecter of our salvation. So in that faith, let's lift up our imperfections so that we can love each other as we ought to in this church. Let's pray.